Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ. And we thank you that you gather us around your word. We pray, Father, that wherever we are, that as we hear your word spoken, as we hear your word taught, that you will be teaching us. Help us to understand Jesus as the promise of a better covenant, a better future and a better hope. That as we hear of the great message and of the great work he has done, we'll put our place, put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Everyone enjoys the expectation of an upcoming or promised event, whether that be a birthday, a wedding day, a a wonderful meal with the family. We all know the joy and excitement of looking forward to something special in our lives. And as we wait those events, there are those milestones that we create in our minds that lead up and serve as reminders of the thing that we're looking forward to having. Now, in my family, we have an infamous example of just such a milestone. When I was young and living on a hobby farm, my dad bred horses. He loved and continues to love horses. And so, at this one particular Christmas, my mother decided to buy him as a present. She decided to buy a saddle for him. Now, my mother, she wasn't a crunchy girl. She didn't grow up in the country, so she knew nothing about saddles. So what she decided to do, because she knew nothing about saddles, and she wanted to get the saddle without my father's knowledge, she wanted to surprise him. So what she decided to do, and this was her great idea, she would draw a picture of a saddle and give it to him as a down payment of the saddle that was to come, that the saddle she would go and buy with him. Now, I'm a lot older now, and my parents have moved away from the farm and the horses, but I'm still pretty sure he's waiting for that saddle. The picture that my mother drew was a down payment, a shadow of something better to come. The picture was given as a promise of something greater he would receive. And when we have those moments, when we see those things, we could go, oh, I really want that gift. I'm really looking forward to that special moment, that special promise, the special saddle. If we get that saddle, it would be absolutely foolishness to go back to the picture, to not take the greater gift, to not take the greater thing. Today in our talk, we're looking at shadows and realities. And we're seeing that Jesus has come to be the true fulfillment of a shadow that had gone on throughout the Old Testament. And as we continue on in our series of Hebrews, we're going to see that where we're up to at Hebrews 8 is really the culmination of an argument that's gone on for since chapter 4. For we read as the first words of chapter 8, now the main point of what is being said is this. That is what the writer is saying. is, Well, I've been talking for four chapters. The conclusion of the argument that I started way back in chapter 4 is simply this. And so it would be good to go back and let's read chapter 4 because this is where he starts at 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Now, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, here is Jesus, our great high priest, and he is the greater thing that the Old Testament was always looking forward to. And he goes through in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, and he explains in a lot of more detail why Jesus is the greater high priest. And his big point when he comes to this is if we look at Jesus as the person who is the true fulfillment, the true high priest, the true bringer of God's great promises in the Old Testament, he simply says this, don't go back. What we have in Jesus is so much greater than the shadow. This is, Jesus is so much bigger than the picture that God has given us in the Old Testament. And he makes this point in three ways in the chapter. He says we have a better priest, a better high priest, a better covenant and a better relationship with God. And so this being the case, don't go back, don't move away from Jesus for he is the real deal. And he starts off with Jesus as the better priest. He says, we have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. We have a better priest because our priest is not on earth in a temporary dwelling made by human hands. Our priest cares from us, from the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle, God's dwelling. The word tabernacle just means dwelling or residence. Our priest does not work at a temporary dwelling made with fallible, sinful human hands. He is in the heavens. That is an eternal dwelling. He serves at a better dwelling, a greater dwelling, a heavenly dwelling. Think of it this way. Imagine someone offered you a place in a beautiful home on the coast of Australia. You have this beautiful ocean view. You have this dream home. And I want you to imagine this for a moment. You're looking across, out across the ocean from your beautiful dream home, given to you free of charge. And as you're looking out at this amazing view, a person comes along the beach And they offer you, in exchange for this beautiful home, a one-man tent and an inflatable kiddie pool that you can set up in the Simpson Desert, free of charge. And you decide, I will take this offer. I will take the one-man tent and the inflatable kiddie pool and I'll set them up in the desert because then I'll be proud of the work that I have done. You would be insane. We have been given so much more in Jesus. He is our great high priest who serves in this great abode, this great dwelling, this beautiful home. 
And the argument the writer of Hebrews is making, we have been given the full, the full measure, the full promise, the full hope of the Old Testament. The Old Testament things that God dwelled, the, the tabernacle, the tents in the deserts, they were only a shadow of the things to come. And this is what he says in, in verse 5. These serve as a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the, uh, on the mountain. His argument isn't so much about the priests. He is contrasting the, pra- the places where they serve. And the priest must be sufficient for the dwelling he's serving at. God's dwelling is an eternal dwelling. It's not a crummy tent in the desert. Our priest has sat down at the right hand of God. His offering for his people has been accepted. He does not need to offer anymore. Jesus is our high priest. He has done everything to set aside and deal with our sin. He has paid the price for what we have done wrong. He has paid the price and God has accepted his offering. There's nothing more that needs to be done on our behalf. Jesus is the true high priest because he has completed the work. He has finished what needed to be done. He is not the priest who needs to keep going back and re-offering or recapitulating the sacrifices. That was the problem with the Old Testament system. They just needed to be done again and again and again because they were never sufficient. And that is what the author is saying about the Old Testament when he speaks about Moses. The Old Testament system, a tent in the desert with a kiddie pool. We now have the dream home. Don't go back. Now, where does this land? Why is this important? And it comes back down to why do we do the Lord's Supper as opposed to a Roman Catholic Mass or Eucharist? Now, Joe spoke about this a little bit last week. But I just want to point out some things about the Lord's Supper. We invite people to the Lord's table and not a sacrificial altar. And you will notice when we, as ministers, invite you to the table, we don't stand in front of the table because we are not your mediators between God and the meal. We stand, we don't stand at the back of the table. And the reason we don't stand at the back of the table is it is not our table. It is not our offering. We are not inviting you well, we are not the people who provide the table. God is the provider. It is the Lord's table. Instead, as ministers, we stand to the side of the table and we invite people to come up and enjoy the meal of with God because it is the Lord's table and we're communing with him. We're enjoying fellowship with him. That is the point of the table. It is not a sacrifice. We don't have to represent the sacrifice of God, because Jesus' sacrifice was enough. If Jesus' sacrifice was not enough, what 
could we possibly offer in comparison to him? And that is the writer's point. We don't have to keep offering because every time we bring the offering, we are saying what was offered before was not enough. We say Jesus' priestly offering in heaven is good enough and is acceptable once and for all time. That is why it is a communion table. It is all symbolism, but what we say through our symbols reflects what we believe. And the communion table foreshadows what we all look forward to in heaven when we're united with Jesus. Jesus has done all of this for us. We have all been given the beach house. The point, don't go back to the desert. Furthermore, we see Jesus, our priest, now mediates a better covenant. We read in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. Now the argument here is the same as the first part of the chapter, but it's said slightly different in a very helpful way. And you need to be aware as you're reading this passage that the first audience would have been mainly Jewish. Hence, they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament history. The, the first audience would have been very familiar with the stories. Okay, we need to be reading our Old Testaments. As most of the first century audience would have been familiar with the importance and meanings of God's covenant with Israel. For a lot of people today are very unfamiliar with the Old Testament, especially even amongst Christians. And some of us are even unfamiliar with the idea or the word of covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a promise or an oath or contract kept between two parties. Now, there is a lot more that could be said, but for the sake of what we're doing today, that'll be enough. When God saved Israel out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. He made a promise, a contract with them. And the writer contrasts the two two covenants in this section in a number of ways. But his main point is simply this about the first covenant, is that it failed. And the reason that the covenant fails is that the people did. And this is where you really need to keep in mind the history of the story of Israel. Now, the the writer doesn't go into great detail about any particular point of history, but he certainly wants us to be aware of it, of Israel's failure, because as we do, then we understand the reason and we can understand the reason why it failed. And the reason for their failure is hinted at very strongly in verse 10, and it's given in a positive sense here. When, he's, when the writer says, God will write his law on their hearts and on their minds. Now, this is a reference back to Jeremiah 31. But the implied reason for Israel's failure was that the law wasn't written on their hearts and minds. Instead, it was written on stone tablets. That is, their hearts weren't in it. The hearts of the people were not in the covenant. I want to read something from Numbers. And as we do so, we've got to remember, God has delivered, at this point where I'm going to be reading this, God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. 
from the hand of Pharaoh, who they cried out to God, save us, deliver us from him. He's appeared to them at the mountaintop, at Mount Sinai, and he's given them his law. He has cared for them. He has fed them. And he has saved them from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And he's done all this. And I want you to listen to how they responded. And this is from Numbers. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at but this manna. I cannot read that and not cringe. And not because they did it, but because I know I so easily can. Look at how they picture their predicament. They were complaining about their slavery in Egypt. They were complaining about how hard life was. But now how are they saying what Egypt was like? It is the land of plenty. Free fish, free food, burgers, chips, onions, garlic, whatever we like. If only we could go back there. If only we could go back to the land of slavery. The covenant failed because the people failed. They did not fulfill their role as mediator to the nations. But here is the great news for Christians. Here is the great promise for us. This new covenant will not fail because it is enacted by better promises through a better mediator. And this is the great encouragement for us. It will not fail because of us. And this is the point the writer keeps on making. If we have this new unbreakable covenant, if we have this great promise set given to us by God, why would we go back and use the one that didn't work? Which is to say, which is what he says at the end of the chapter. It is fading away, this covenant. It will disappear. Don't go back to it. When it comes to pleasing God or earning his favour, man will try all kinds of religious works and actions. And it would be easy to read this section and say, come on, pick up your uh, pick yourselves up by your bootstraps. Do better, work harder, please God. But that is the exact opposite of what the passage is teaching. Jesus has enacted a better imperishable covenant. Don't go back and try to work hard, try to earn God's favour, try to put in a better promise for yourself. I want you to think about this for a second. This is the religion the author says, don't go back to it. This religion that they're not to go back to, this is the religion that God has set up for his people. And he is saying that religion failed. If the religion that God set up has failed, can you please tell me 
how any other religion set up by man is going to possibly succeed. The one that God has set up was a shadow, a down payment of the one to come in Jesus. The promise that God has given us in Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Testament religion. It wasn't the true reality. And how do we obtain this greater promise? How do we obtain this greater hope? We trust in Jesus. We trust his death and his resurrection for obtaining God's blessing. We do not have to earn God's favour. It is given to us in Jesus. And the promises we have in Jesus will not fail because the one who enacts them will not fail. We have been given everything we need in Jesus because he lives in us. Which is the final point. We have a better relationship now with God. We read, and each person will now teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord. Oh, and each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I'll forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Instead of being outside, the law being outside of us, no longer will each person have to go to this place or this or do this thing. God will not be in a temple, in a holy place, behind a curtain. Instead, God will be with us. He'll be in us. He will live within us. He will write his law on our hearts and on our minds and he will be our God and we will be his people. We don't need astrology or Buddhism or Islam. We don't need our horoscopes. And I use the word horoscopes that come in the paper. And yes, the pun is intended. We don't need stars or palm readers or tarot cards or Ouija boards. Whatever we think we could do to please God, it is rubbish. Whatever we think can secure our future or give us a better hope, it will fail. None of them will work because none of them can give us what we truly need. None of them will give us the great hope and a great future, the great promise that we see here, the thing that our society so desperately seeks. I will remember, never again remember their sins. That is the great promise. God has dealt with it all, dealt with it all. This is a promise you will get nowhere else but in Jesus. We don't need to draw near to God because God has drawn near to us and that is the great promise of Jesus. That is the great relational blessing we have. God is with each and every one of his people. He walks with us. He cares for us. He loves us so much that he sent his son for us. What more could we ask? He will never leave us. So why would we trust any other thing but Jesus? You can imagine 
if someone took my mother's drawing of a saddle, threw it on a horse and tried to ride it, that would be insane. How much more is it the case with Jesus? In Jesus, we have a better priest who serves at a better sanctuary. We have a better, unbreakable covenant given to us by Jesus. It will never fade. It will never perish. And we have a better relationship. There is no other way through which God will draw near to his people. And so the point of the passage is this. Don't go back to anything else. Trust Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you great thanks for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is a great high priest who has paid the price for our sins. We thank you that he serves at a better sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary. We thank you, Father, that he is a better mediator of better promises. He has given a better covenant and it is a covenant that will not fail because we are failures. It will succeed because your son succeeds and he brings us with him into the great hope and future through to which you are drawing us all. And finally, Father, we give you great thanks that you give us a better relationship through Jesus, that you live with us and in us and we are your people. And we ask, Father, and keep on calling out that you will be our God and that we will serve you, not to earn your pleasure, but in praise of thanks and just a desire to show your glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.